Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where I engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is November 5, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to welcome discussion members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. Today, we're revisiting the third part of Plato's dialogue, the Timaeus, covering from 48a to 69a, where the astronomer Timaeus explains how the physical senses perceive shape by measuring differences with reference to the form of the same. Timaeus equates this understanding of shape to an understanding of time, the nature of which he described from 37d to 38c, where we ended our session two weeks ago. I've reposted that passage on time, together with selections from today's reading on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. So that everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. Once we finish recording in two hours, I invite anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So two weeks ago, we also discussed imitations of the eternal that come to be and pass away in the physical realm of becoming that our bodies occupy, in which nothing ever is, but everything operates in a continual state of motion and change. Today, we'll hear Timaeus explain why imitations in the realm of becoming of the forms that exist in the unchanging eternal realm of being are necessarily constrained within limits. These limits, he says, are themselves shapeless and formless and constitute a container that he likens to a wet nurse for the physics of becoming. Since the subject of shape is a focus of today's reading, recall that in the Mino, Socrates defines shape as the limit of a physical solid, which Timaeus amplifies beginning at 50b, when he depicts shape as the perfect medium for physical objects to make their impressions. Timaeus previously described the universe as spherical, containing all the shapes that are, and he placed at the center of the universal sphere a soul that revolves around itself, Today, we'll hear Timaeus emphasize that, as it surrounds the soul, the physical realm of becoming operates according to probability. He continuously refers to the likely account of physics that our souls make, and modern science confirms the importance of probability to intelligence because Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says that we can never have simultaneous knowledge of physical position and momentum. So Timaeus explains how we gain intelligence by measuring cause and effect in the order of time. At 44a to b, Timaeus asserts that, quote, whenever a soul is bound within a mortal body, it at first lacks intelligence. But as the stream that brings growth and nourishment diminishes, and the soul's orbit regain their composure, resume the, their proper courses, and establish themselves more and more with the passage of time, the revolutions are set straight to conform to the configuration each of these circles takes in its natural course. They then correctly identify what is the same and what is different, and render intelligent the persons who possess them. Today we'll hear Timaeus explain more of the geometry of the universe and its four fundamental physical elements of earth and fire mediated by air and water, the existence of which he credits to the only five regular solids in the universe. We now call these platonic solids because Plato, who was a geometer, introduced them into the world in this dialogue. Timaeus explains their existence as necessary for the geometry of the universe to contain shape in opposition to solid, thus allowing intelligence to operate by measuring differences. So does this mean that the universe is a product of intelligent design? Intelligent design is now a much debated proposition that is subject to differing interpretations. I think that Timaeus's depiction allows us to reframe the question. 
We have already heard him say that the creator of the universe did not create human beings because the creator can only create things that are immortal. He also said that we aren't answerable to the creator and that we are the authors of our own fates. As my thinking is evolving on it, Timaeus's construction of the universe with a soul at its center, surrounded by the uncertainties of the same and different, brings forward two fundamentally philosophical questions. One, is it logical to think that the physical universe came into being before intelligence, and that somehow later, in a way that we cannot yet explain, intelligence emerged as a self-sustaining force? And two, how could it be possible for intelligence to measure the uncertainties of physical motion if intelligence were one and the same with the physical and therefore not capable of independent observation of physical changes? So I find Timaeus's answer to the second question at 28a to be empowering for the soul. There he explained that intelligent beings occupy two separate realms. Their bodies are in the ever-changing realm of becoming, while their immaterial minds occupy the eternal realm of being and thus observer and observed do not interfere with each other and both exist independently. He amplifies this in today's reading at 52d, when he states, quote, as long as the one is distinct from the other, neither of them ever comes to be in the other in such a way that they at the same time become one and the same, and also two. So on this note, let me begin today's discussion by reading 48a to 48c, where Timaeus refers to the probabilities that exist in the realm of becoming where what he calls the character of the strain cause requires our souls to distinguish between the same and the different. And this, maybe we can think about um, the answer to one of the questions that I pose for this session, which is, uh, given the nature of time and the realm of becoming that Timaeus describes, how do number and proportion relate to the operation of our five senses as he explains them? This is kind of the introduction to this section and his explanation of the operation of the senses. So this is 48A48E. Now, in all but a brief part of the discourse I have just completed, I presented what has been crafted by intellect. But I need to match this account by providing a comparable one concerning the things that have come about by necessity. For this ordered world is of mixed birth. It is the offspring of a union of necessity and intellect. Intellect prevailed over necessity by persuading it to direct most of the things that come to be toward what is best. And the result of this subjugation of necessity to wise persuasion was the initial formation of the universe. So if I'm to tell the story of how it really came to be in this way, I'd also have to introduce the character of the straying cause, how it is its nature to set things adrift. I shall have to retrace my steps then, and armed with a second starting point that also applies to these same things, I must go back once again to the beginning and start my present inquiry from there, just as I did with my earlier one. We shall, of course, have to study the intrinsic nature of fire, water, air, and earth prior to the heavens coming to be, as well as the properties they had then. So far, no one has yet revealed how these four came to be. We tend to posit them as the elemental letters of the universe and tell people they are its principles on the assumption that they know what fire and the other three are. In fact, however, they shouldn't even be compared to syllables. Only a very unenlightened person might be expected to make such a comparison. So let me now proceed with my treatment in the following way. For the present, I cannot state the principle or principles of all things, or however else I think about them, for the simple reason that it is difficult to show clearly what my view is if I follow my present manner of exposition. Please do not expect me to do so then. I couldn't even convince myself that I could be right to commit myself to undertaking a task of such magnitude. I shall try to keep to what I stated at the beginning, 
the virtue of likely accounts. And so she'll try from the start to say about things, both individually and collectively, what is no less likely than any, or more likely, in fact, than what I would have said before. Let us therefore at the outset of this discourse call upon the God to be our savior this time too, to give us safe passage through a strange and unusual exposition and lead us to a view of what is likely. And so let me begin my speech again. So this is at the beginning of today's reading and it explains the this connection of necessity to intelligence. And there's a couple of interesting things in here. One is the references to having to restart the present inquiry. So this idea of turning back um, may have something to do, I'm not sure, with the construction of the universe that Timaeus has already explained with the soul turning around the middle. Uh, and then this repeated these repeated references to likely accounts, likelihood and, and probability, uh, I thought was interesting here. And, you know, that may have something to do with the nature of the realm of becoming where we don't. We can't really know anything specifically. Nothing specifically has a has a fixed point. Uh, everything is always changing. And so, are there any thoughts on this section and the idea of probabilities and the four elements uh, that Timaeus is going to go on to explain in some detail in this part of the dialogue that we're discussing today? And then the notion of uh, a universe constructed to accommodate intelligence. And then the, the two questions that I asked at the outset, you know, is it logical to think that the physical universe came into being before intelligence? And then whether it's possible for intelligence to measure the uncertainties of physical motion if intelligence were one and the same with the physical? In other words, if there wasn't separation. Clem, your thoughts? Hello, everyone. Uh, hello, James. Hi. Um, great to be here again. So, I think that the more the, the more you read, that the more dense the uh, the exposition by Plato uh, gets. The really the more questions <laughs> rather than answers you uh, you have because it's he touches on so many different points and looks at the existence that he's trying to explain from so many different angles that it almost at this point it's like. Uh, there, there is a, a need to break down maybe some of of the the terms that he introduces uh rather than just start using them because there may be i think there may be some misunderstanding we we may run at least myself personally i'm obviously speaking about myself like i feel that there's potentially i may be misunderstanding something that that he writes and in probably the first question that i would ask is he does introduce maybe maybe reintroduce the distinction between the reason on one hand and the necessity and i'd like to maybe stop there for you know for for a while and see what what our understanding is on on those terms and where they come from and maybe you know maybe have some background on that a very good point and thanks for raising that because i think it's essential to this section that we're reading today. And what do others think about that distinction between uh, reason of the intellect and necessity as he's describing it here? I think this section deals with the idea of a container or limits to the physical things in the, in the universe. So that everything physical has a limit. Everything physical has a beginning and an end. Uh, but 
we are never able, we now know, according to a Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, we're never able to know exactly the position and the momentum of a physical thing at the same time, simultaneously. So our knowledge is limited, uh, but everything physical exists in limits. So I think here he's talking about a container for the physical, and that's my understanding of the necessity. Um, Mark, your thoughts on that or any other uh, questions? Thanks, James and Kim, for, for those questions as well. I'm not sure if necessity is the container or if necessity is the uh, sort of the sensible world that is more of a chaos and is only ordered by reason. And that's how the cosmos comes into being. And so, James, I'm not sure if that's a partial or maybe even incorrect answer to your first question of whether, I'm not sure how you phrase it, the universe, maybe the word universe contains both the chaos and the cosmos, uh, or maybe universe because it's uni it's one thing. Maybe by that you meant the cosmos. So that's the way I was reading this, that the necessity is the sensible and reason is what orders it. And from that we get the, cosmos out of chaos thank you well thank you and and i like that distinction of cosmos and chaos um in the sense that as i'm understanding you're saying that chaos would be the the unknowable motions of the physical or at least the the unknowable outcomes of the physical motions and yeah it's interesting i, I like the way that you put necessity could be the the sensible that which delivers data to the physical senses that makes some sense to me yeah it, i i think that that's interesting let let's explore that and see what uh, others think so thank you for that and we'll go to roger and then darren yes i i can't help but think when you say that necessity is kind of a confinement or a containment notion or concept um to think about it as a constraint that we're not free to act. And here I'm linking with other philosophers, but I'm since I'm not really uh, versed in philosophy, so I just like get ideas uh, from here and there. So forgive me for that. But the idea of necessity being uh, a constraint is, is perhaps you're not free to act. There are certain laws and rules of nature that will force you to act in a certain way. But obviously in the case of Plato back then, he couldn't have framed it as laws of nature that we understand today, you know, conservation laws and, and other, I mean, mainly conservation laws of momentum, energy, and so on, uh, and mass. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering whether there is any link between what, what he meant back then uh, in the way the universe was constructed, it was constructed in a way that those laws exist and they're the ones that govern uh, the universe and the phenomena that we, we live. And here we go back a little bit maybe to Leibniz who, who believes that God did not really create uh, our universe. God had no choice but to choose the universe that we we know today or whatever over time. 
and that universe has certain characteristics that that's the only one that's vi viable. I mean, he had an infinite number of choices, apparently, from what I understood from Leibniz, that God could have chosen another universe, but he chose the one that that we know, actually. And, and as you dig a bit deeper, it's the universe that's governed, in fact, by the laws that we understand. So I'm just wondering whether there is any any link with that and whether Plato had that insight that maybe, again, he could not frame them as laws, but whether there is any connection with that. Well, thank you for that. And, and I think there's actually some really interesting points that you made there. Um, now, the, the question, did God choose the one universe of many possibilities? Um, I'm wondering whether that relates to the question of intelligence, because I think what Timaeus is saying here is that this is the only possible way to establish a universe that has intelligence at its core, at its, at its very center. And in fact, Timaeus says that there cannot be anything solid at the center of a sphere, otherwise it wouldn't be able to move because everything is equal distance to the extreme. So he's saying that the center of the sphere is immaterial and that's where the soul is and that we are all branches of the universal soul. So that's how he set this up. So I, I think Timaeus is implying, I don't think he really says it explicitly, but I think he's implying that this is the only possible configuration that would allow for intelligence to be preeminent in the universe. And he said that intelligence is actually the oldest thing in the universe, older than the physical. Um, so that that's one thing I would say. And then the other thing, you mentioned the laws of physics, and I'm actually finding there's a number of sections in today's reading where I've highlighted, or I think that they actually really are talking about what we now know as Newton's laws of motion. You know, there's a section 57 around 57C, uh, where he's talking about the receptacle or this container uh, agitating the masses of each of the kinds that are separated from one another with each occupying its own region. But because some parts of a particular kind do from time to time become unlike their former selves and like the other kinds, they're carried by the shaking towards the region occupied by whatever masses they are becoming like too. To me, that almost sounded like a description of gravity um, or something like something similar to it. I mean, it's Maybe it's it's just kind of that universal kind of law that's that's known. And then I I found in sixty two C to sixty four C, which I have at the end of the reading today. I don't think we'll be able to get there. There's so much to cover, but I found a number of references in there that really kind of mirror Newton's laws of motion. For example, when he talks about this interesting. Um, comparison he says imagine a man stepping into that region of the universe that is the particular province of fire in other words i guess like in the middle of the sun where the greatest mass of fire is gathered together and toward which the other fire moves imagine further that he has the power to remove some parts of the fire and place them on scales when he raises the beam and drags the fire into the alien air applying force to it clearly the lesser quantity of fire somehow gives way to his force and more easily than the greater for when two things are raised by one and the same exertion, the lesser quantity will invariably yield more readily and the greater, which offers more resistance, less readily to the force applied. That was an interesting reference. And then there was another really interesting one. Uh, yeah, this, this one is particularly interesting. This one makes me think of Newton's second law of motion that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And this is right at the end of that section, uh, around 64B or so, 
64C, I think. He says, when even a minor disturbance affects that which is easily moved by nature, the disturbance is passed on in a chain reaction with some parts affecting others in the same way as they were affected until it reaches the center of consciousness and reports the property that produced the reaction. So, I mean, it really struck me as I was reading those, and especially in that last section, that that these could be references to universal laws, but in the way that they thought of them or presented them at the time, not not using the language we do now. Yes, well, in, in fact, it would perhaps be better to refer to Plato's interpretation to explain some of those notions instead of just saying, oh, here is Newton's third law, action, reaction, you see. That's it. We know that that's the end of what, what we say, you know, when we tend to explain Newton's law. But I think referring back to that, you know, interpretation and the allegorical way that Plato puts it, perhaps would give us more insight into how we can convey those dry notions. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thank you very much for uh, mm-hmm. referring back to those examples. Thank you. Yes, well, and thank you for the question. And and I like the way that you you said that this gives, I guess, kind of inf- different information. This this almost explains the why of it, doesn't it? it? You know, because you have this immaterial property at the center of the spherical universe, and all of the properties, all of this chain reaction running inside that sphere everything feeds into that intelligence that's at the middle of the universe. And that's maybe this why, like why for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And maybe that's what allows the intelligence to do its measurement. You know, I, I have pointed to it previously. Um, it's in, I did put this in the last time, actually, this part on the the Fido. The Fido was all about the soul. And 73C from the Fido, I think I called attention to this last time as well. Or 75A, actually, we must then possess knowledge of the equal before that time when we first saw the equal objects and realized that all these objects strive to be like the equal, but are deficient in this. Um, and this is, again, this knowledge of measurement, I think, which is what he's setting up or what Timaeus is setting up in this section of the dialogue. So, so thank you. And we'll go to Darren. Hey, everyone. Uh, so, yeah, I, I guess I'll just make some comments about this first section here we've been discussing. First, uh, a subtlety that kind of jumps out for me is that he's exploring or giving an account of, um, or a likely account of the necessary. I think it's that's maybe something important to keep in mind that it is accepting that there is something that is necessary or necessary causes, but we're only giving a likely account of it in the various points. He's even like, Oh, if someone smarter comes along and, you know, and figures this out and has a better account, then, you know, good for them, you know, <laughs> then we'll go, then we'll go with them. So it's this combination of a probable account of what is necessary. And th- this section here actually jumps off from something from last week we didn't get to, which is the idea of where he introduced the idea of multiple different kinds of causes. So there like he has different terms to distinguish um, these causes. And at certain times, he actually calls the intellectual causes. He also calls it intellectual causes, the divine causes. And he even comes out and says, I think this was in the reading last week, he actually says they're actual causes. And then the intellectual causes, or sorry, then um, the necessary causes, he calls the um, auxiliary or secondary 
so that's also an interesting sort of configuration of terms where the necessary cause is actually secondary and auxiliary and there's a higher cause than the necessary cause which is the intellectual cause which he says are the actual and primary causes so those are all the terms he uses so maybe just throw those on the table um and okay and so there's this question of that uh Klim and others have brought up about how these causes relate I think it can be a little bit confusing of like where we cross from the intellectual cause to the necessary causes. Like, where, like other people were, um, I think, um, who was it earlier? I think it was, um, oh, it was Mark, I think, who, who was trying to answer like to where that line is. Um, for me, I think what's helpful for me, accepting that there is like, I think there, it, it is a little bit confusing. I'll have to revisit the, the text. But for me, what's helpful is that at the very end of the reading for today, he talks about how the uh, intellectual causes makes use of the auxiliary causes, you know, to produce this world. So there are like a whole bunch of these auxiliary or necessary causes, which this intellectual cause makes use of almost like in an agentic sense to sort of create and design a world. Um, and at various times, he also talks about the intellectual cause, like giving the elements, giving them, what did he say? He, he says he gives them, one sec. Um, oh, the first thing that God did was to give them their distinctive shapes using forms and numbers. So there's also that. So you can think of it as like trying to divide, draw a line where you categorize one cause from another, where I think it's, it's a little bit confusing where that line is. But like, I guess the way I'm making sense of it for myself at the moment is like, there's the intellectual cause that's making use of uh, these other causes, or even sort of sometimes as he says later on, as I just read, he gives them numbers and uh, proportions and so on. So I don't know. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's, that might be another way of thinking about it. And Okay, I'll just wrap up with this final point, though. And I think this uh, feeds into my sort of way of drawing this distinction, which is that the way this intellectual cause makes use of, like, it sounds like, you know, the, 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 he doesn't use the word creator, the craftsman, right? The craftsman is making use of these auxiliary causes is actually analogous to what we do as human beings. And it's sort of, the suggestion is that we sort of want to conform our ethics to what this uh, universe, this, this, um, um, I keep wanting to say creator. <laughs> this, what's the, craft, the craftsman? Craftsman, right. Oh my goodness. Craftsman. <laughs> this craftsman. So there's, there's like an ethical component where we're supposed to conform ourselves to this universe, this craftsman created. And so like we can, ex we also ex exercise kind intellectual, a kind of intellectual cause that's different from the necessary, like maybe like you might call physical or causes mm -hmm. in the world. And he, so he says at the very end of the reading today that we should look for the divine or the we might read here, the divine, divine cause in all things. If we are to gain a life of happiness to the extent our nature allows and then he says the necessary second, and then he says, we search for the necessary causes, but only for the sake of the divine. And so there is like, there, there's sort of just like the, you know, the labor of trying to figure out where the line is. I, I think it also comes down to an important ethical point where the line is 
partly like where we find ourselves trying to figure out, you know, how to live our lives. That's also how we can understand where the line is. Um, and and then of course this all this all comes back to the republic and trying to put the republic <laughs> in motion and trying to figure out whether that it is a good republic. So there's there's that question too. And so whether it's a good republic would be whether I guess it combined sorry conforms with the uh, divine or intellectual causes. Mm. So there's that aspect too. So there's yeah. Mm. So maybe that's another way of thinking about this this distinction. Mm. And that's an interesting connection to the republic, which of course they began the Timaeus with talking about what they had spoken about the previous day, which was the subject of Plato's Republic, um, and that question of how you put an imitation into motion. Um, interesting that you talked about drawing the line and the two types of causes, the intellectual and the necessary, uh, intellectual being prime, necessary being auxiliary. And I guess that maybe ties into the order of becoming in which Timaeus says that the intellect came first and the physical, which is subject to senses um, or sensible came second. And maybe that that's, as you said, you know, kind of what Mark was talking about in terms of necessity being the sensible. In other words, we we have to have something to sense with our physical senses. And, and the end of today's reading, as you pointed out, is all about the physical senses, how the physical senses operate. So it's clearly a big theme in this part of the uh, of the dialogue. So so thank you for raising those points. And we have Clem, then Steve, then Mark. Clem. All right. Um, actually, that, that helps me a lot. And thank you very much, uh, James and, and Darren and everybody uh, for sharing your thoughts. Um, it, it sort of confirms my um, understanding um, that it probably has to do with these two realms that we talked initially about that were introduced right in the beginning of the text and I would place the necessary causes closer probably to the the conditioned realm or the, the realm of uh, change and constantly becoming but not being this I and I also understand that this is a very huge simplification <laughs> of this complete discourse that happens in, in, in the dialogue because we're not really, uh, or some of us, most of us probably are not, not aware of the cultural uh, and, and the context of that whole discussion because obviously the, the audience that's being addressed is the, you know, the people who knew these questions and, and, and they were constantly discussing these topics uh, at the time of, you know, when this text was generated. Uh, so for us, it just leaves a, a lot of room to um, guess and speculate. And also we have this burden of our, I, I call it, it's, it's actually a positive term <laughs> for uh, scientific burden that, that we have. And we, we constantly compare our um, understanding of the, the you know, modern understanding of the reality and, and try to um, make their understanding fit. You know, we, we can't help but, you know, fall into that, uh, error of you know trying to explain what Plato writes with our current knowledge of the scientific knowledge or philosophical knowledge. So there's all sorts of traps for us that you know don't don't make the investigation that easy and smooth. You know there's obviously a lack of information around that time, the concepts that were used, how they were used. That there's a language barrier also. 
uh, and coming back to the the term that Plato specifically chose which translates as necessity it almost I mean if I if I were to vote I would say well that's a that's a poor choice of semantics there I mean I could I could explain to myself how how I would call something like that as a necessity by saying well that you can't this is something that you cannot avoid since you're part of the um tangible world the world of the, the gross matter uh world that we're part of the secondary type of reality which is conditioned on the on the world of ideas and it just everything comes to us through senses and it's unavoidable therefore it's necessary but it, again it's still not the best uh choice of of term but maybe maybe the context of that um the the connotation uh of that term was a, a lot larger uh, and who knows who, who knows really how that term back then how it came into the existence but that's why i was trying to clarify in the beginning like what the heck do, do they mean when they introduce necessity it's easier to understand reason because it's almost like directly identified with the the divine world the, the world of ideas the world of god and the, the first cause and principles uh, and so then logically then the opposite of that should be to me at least you know should be related to uh the the lower realm so to speak with auxiliary you know does sort of another definition of it uh, auxiliary causes maybe obvious causes that set you know sensible causes it, it all makes sense to me again i'm not like 100 sure but i think it's at least i'm able to form some roadmap there at least and i know it's, it's constantly constantly changing that's what's actually intriguing <laughs> like uh so it's it's an investigation research and i think i i try to keep that mind you know um without basically saying okay we know we know 100 percent what this means let's move on it's always you make adjustments as you as you move on i think <laughs> so i i just want to kind of wrap this topic up and i would also say that the reason probably is more identifiable with this another term that, that he's using right from the beginning the same uh right and then the other would probably be more identified with the necessity because he does make that distinction between same and and, and he he places that dichotomy right be, between the same and the other right in the beginning and then he's he talks a little bit about something else and he, he seems to come back to that original proposition that he makes in, in the beginning of the dialogue and, and it's, it's a constant play between these two worlds but the, although interestingly and very intriguingly now and then he throws other entities into the picture like like the passage that we're gonna discuss i'm sure pretty soon is gonna talk about this third entity that he introduces which is more of a um um I'd like to use my other word, the binder, <laughs> my term that I introduced, that, that's sort of like a, a layer in between or mm -hmm. the the function of the, the relationship between the first two um, and where he's talking about the receptive, the nature of that third entity. Uh, and it has to do with nurturing and uh, generating forms at the lower level uh, the, the lower level of reality so it's 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 a third entity that's responsible 
apparently for generating the forms, even though itself it it's, has to be by definition formless in order to be able to to generate all the multitude and in, 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 in infinitude of forms. But that's the next topic. But as you see how we always have to deal with, well, he's like, he's, he throws, he throws like another object into the discussion, like all of a sudden. And then you're like, okay, well, so that sort of clarifies it a little bit, but then how do you build the, the relation? Then you have to reconsider the relationship between the, the, the original terms. Which is which is great because I, to me Plato is it's not a dogma, it's almost like he's discovering stuff when he talks uh, or or he writes, which is I think it's like a brain brainstorming in a way. I think it's it's great. Uh, so I'll stop here because I know there are other topics uh, that we'll you know we'll try to reach. But I, to me, for me, it was important to kind of. Um, loop back to after everybody expressed their opinion at least to kind of tell others that I, I think I think I'm okay for now with how we explained the the necessity and then there will be the subject of triangles which I, I, I think it's amazing where he just <laughs> starts talking about triangles as some some building blocks for the lower level of reality that somehow also appear out of nothing like as geometrical mm -hmm. geometrical shapes that you know if you think about that it would be probably more appropriately placed within the the first realm <laughs> right because these are purely speculative they're, they're they're not tangible objects they're more like ideas right very mm -hmm. very clear very very divine mm -hmm. uh abstract ideas in in essence and then but then he almost like makes them building blocks for mm -hmm. within the the realm and domain of that third entity yeah. that that he introduced but i'll stop yeah. here because i think i think that's that's a very yeah. intriguing topic and there's a lot of irony in there yeah. too when you start to compare it to to our atomic model of the yeah. modern science there's yeah. so much humor that i'll, yeah. I'll i hope <laughs> i'll mention it uh later yeah. I'll, I'll stop here Thanks. And we'll definitely get to the subject of triangles, which has a lot to do with the five platonic solids, as they're now called. I think you, you point to the interesting problem of translation in this word necessity, which I think is, you know, causes me a little bit of problem too, just understanding what is, is specifically being referred to. But you may be just, you know, to remind everybody that this part comes after 37D to 38C, which is what I read at the end of the last session about the nature of time. And I just highlighted this section. So I've, I've repeated this section on the cover page of today's notes. And here, uh, Timaeus has said that time imitates eternity and circles according to number. So I think he's saying that our intelligence has something to do with circles um, and numbers and measuring quantities. Um, and, you know, that fits, I guess, with what he's presented as the spherical nature of the universe. And uh, the position of the soul and and its faculty of reason right at the center of it. So uh, I think maybe necessity has everything to do uh, possibly with this need to measure. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thought. And, and certainly we can think about that word more and maybe there's another word that makes it clearer to everybody. But uh, yeah, the translation is always an interesting thing. So, so thanks. We'll go to Steve and then to Mark. Hey, thanks. It's just to me the <clears throat> the whole uh, 
conception of what we talked about so far seems uh, backwards between intelligence and necessity. Um, and I think it's all still based on the idea that it's it's the, I know we don't like the, the term intelligent design because it, it re reminds us of fundamental Christian uh, opposition to uh, science in the in the schools, but we're when we're talking about a, a demiurge, a craftsman, a creator, a god, uh, in, in we're talking about intelligence being the primary function. So it's it's an intelligent being, uh, intelligence that's that's making everything, and there's no explanation. You know, it's as like he, and what he's saying likely. I don't think he's making doing it in term of probability. It's just like, well, here's a story and it seems most likely because this is a ego-centric explanation, naive explanation of reality. I don't think that it's uh, rare to, you know, the, the, the Greeks of this time and Plato had this, but it's the idea that what uh, Roger, uh, the way he talked a little bit about necessity with the conservation uh, laws and the necessity isn't it's necessity to measure it's there are necessities there are boundaries there are physical laws and that is not the auxiliary that is the ground floor of of how things can come to exist and the idea of intelligence being primary or prior to everything is to the best of our understanding now intelligence <clears throat> is an evolved talent that humans primates have developed, and it was the primary method of which we were able to be survive successfully and how we were able to evolve to the point that we are today and whether it'll continue to be that, you know, a good survival mechanism that's still open to question, um, you know, we're a relatively short-lived species. And at the time of the dinosaurs, uh, mammals were minuscule uh, size of rodents, and potentially the, the only reason we were able to evolve was because the Earth was hit by a comet or a large asteroid and killed off all the larger predators. And so, you know, eventually over hundreds of thousands or million years, we were able to uh, evolve. But it's still the idea that intelligence is the and that there's a, he gives no reason why there's, a, you know, he comes up with the idea of the soul at the center of everything, but there's no proof, there's no evidence, it's just a likely story. It's, it's a likely story, just like, you know, you would be believing in dragons if you were using the Game of Thrones as your, as your, uh, as your model. But it's, it's constantly going back to the idea that there is a creator there is a divine force, there is this higher order, and the, that's all based on how we view the world. You know, we're on a, a small planet uh, in a large universe, and, you know, whether uh, the Greeks at that time thought that they were the center of the universe, uh, they didn't have any ideas, the possibilities of other worlds throughout and you know, going along also with uh, conservation laws, we see that life itself is a, a relic, is extremely, extremely rare occurrence within the universe. 
the universe is not based on life or intelligence. The universe is based more on entropy, where that you know life doesn't occur. Life is a, is a rare uh, function uh, that's coming to be because of you know the the necessity, the physical laws that that of such as gravity and the coming together of the planets uh, around the sun, you know, in a certain solar system. So uh, it just seems like, you know, the the whole idea that intelligence is the uh, creating force is based on our, our own history, our own uh, naive understanding at the time of, you know, and making a story it's like a uh, Rudyard Kipling, just so story, you know, the same way as if you were explaining, he explains how leopards got their spots and how uh, a camel got its hump. Well, you know, at this time period, they're making a story that, you know, they they discovered harmonics, they discovered patterns, they discovered how you can divide up a field with triangles and with rectangles. And these are all useful. And it's like, hey, you know what? This is how the whole universe must be made. This is how the creator, the craftsman made it. Then he created these gods that are these planets that are wandering around. That's, you know, that's that's how all this came to be. So that's my view on this topic. Thanks. Well, thank you. And it's, it's certainly, I think, the idea of needing proof, I think, is, uh, you know, a major problem that a lot of people would have with this dialogue. And I think Timaeus appeals to our willingness a number of times, actually, in this section today, he appeals to our willingness to kind of suspend our questions on you know, a few matters that, you know, he says are, are, are complex and kind of beyond the ability of this discussion at this particular time. So he, he actually makes us he asks us to to believe in a few places, which is interesting because of the place of belief in the divided line of knowledge from the Republic. So um, it, that's an interesting contrast. And I think, I guess, maybe the empirical view of knowledge is that if it cannot be, if something cannot be sensed, it doesn't exist. But I would say we all have knowledge of our own souls, which isn't a material thing that we know exists, or, you know, call it animating force or whatever we want to call it. Uh, we know that this is inside us, but nobody has ever had um, sensory evidence of it. So, you know, maybe that's one example. Um, as to, you know, providing proof of what's in the universe and how the universe is constructed, um, yeah, I think that would be that would be difficult. The one item of proof that he does indicate is that, and, and there's some spherical logic, or there's some logic of this in a spherical universe is that there could not be anything solid in the middle of the sphere. If there was, then there would be no movement. So that's an interesting point about spherical geometry that maybe is one one point of proof that he might be able to offer. But yeah, the, the part that I read actually at the beginning in my introduction from 44a to b, this idea of evolution, you know, and, and Timaeus asserts He's very clear. He says, whenever a soul is bound within a mortal body, it at first lacks intelligence. But then as the soul's orbits regain their composure, resume their proper courses and establish themselves more and more with the passage of time, the revolutions are set straight to conform to the configuration each of these circles takes in its natural course. They then correctly identify what is the same and what is different and render intelligent the persons who possess them. So he's saying that intelligence 
consists in understanding the distinction between the same and the different, uh, which is an interesting thing given how he's talked about the universe coming to be as a spherical thing in which there are two disks. We talked about this last time. One disk is the same. One disk is the different, and these disks, disks are rotating in opposite directions against each other, but they converge at certain points. They meet at certain points. And so I think he's implying that there's there's something in this construction of this, this spherical motion that gives the soul the special power of intelligence to understand the the distinction between same and different. So, But it, it requires suspension of believing in only the material that we can see and sense. So it's a difficult thing for sure. So thank you for raising that. Uh, and then we'll go to Mark and then I'll, I'll do a reading from another section just so that we can move on a bit, but uh, Mark, your thoughts. Thanks, James. Really great listening to everybody. And I wanted to refer back to what uh, Darren was saying about how we delineate these causes. I can't help but think of the fourfold division of being in the Philebus, where we have the limit and the unlimited, the result of the mixture of the limit and the unlimited, and then the cause of the mixture, which I think is identified with mind. Uh, and so the unlimited we could think of as the necessity, what is given, and the imposition of limit on it as caused by mind. And then the limit can be understood possibly as number, which may be form and number, but I'm looking right now, I think this is part of today's reading, 53b, where he says that God began by first marking uh, he's talking about uh, the four elements here. God first began by marking them out into shapes by means of forms and numbers. So there's some role for number to play in marking off whatever comes into being. And going back to 53A, James, as you were asking about, did the universe exist prior to its organization? I'm not sure exactly how you put it, but... At 53a, we get uh, the idea that these kinds, namely the four elements, occupied different places even before that universe was organized and generated out of them. And the Greek there is topan, which is the all or the universe. So he seems literally to be saying that this all existed before it was organized before it came into being as a cosmos which is the word that is used there also in 53a hmm. thanks and thank you for uh, raising that I, I do have 53a to be on my um readings for today if we'll get to that and that's the part that talks about the triangles um so i had that on the screen as you were mentioning it um, and I like the way that you brought the philobus into this, the, the limited, the unlimited, the mixture and the cause. Uh, I think that's actually a really interesting connection to this dialogue. So let's pursue that because I think that that has a great deal of relevance. Um, let me just move on to kind of getting into this idea of the forms um, and 
this is from 50B to 51B. And this is when he gets into more discussion about the nature of shape, which is, I think, what he's saying we're actually measuring. The soul is actually measuring shape. The soul isn't measuring the physical object. Um, and I'm just recalling again what Socrates said in the Mino, that shape is the limit of a solid. So we're measuring the limits of the solid. We're not actually measuring the solid itself, the, the, the three-dimensional physical object. We're measuring its limits. And so I just thought I'd read this section, um, starting at 50B. Suppose you were molding gold into every shape there is, going on nonstop, remolding one shape into the next. If someone then were to point at, at one of them and ask you, what is it? Your safest answer by far with respect to truth would be to say gold, but never triangle or any of the other shapes that come to be in the gold, as though it is these, because they change even while you're making the statement. However, that answer too should be satisfactory as long as the shapes are willing to accept what is such as someone's designation. This has a degree of safety. Now, the same account, in fact, holds also for that nature which receives all the bodies. We must always refer to it by the same term, for it does not depart from its own character in any way. Not only does it always receive all things, it has never in any way whatever taken on any characteristic similar to, to any of the things that enter it. Its nature is to be available for anything to make its impression upon, and it is modified, shaped, and reshaped by the things that enter it. These are the things that make it appear different at different times. The things that enter and leave it are imitations of those things that always are, imprinted after their likeness in a marvelous way that is hard to describe. This is something we shall pursue at another time. And I'll just break there. I mean, that's one of these instances where he says it's getting too complex. We'll have to deal with this at a different time. Then he goes on. For the moment, we need to keep in mind three types of things, that which comes to be, that in which it comes to be, and that after which the thing coming to be is modeled, and which is the source of its coming to be. It is in fact appropriate to compare the receiving thing to a mother, the source to a father, and the nature between them to be their offspring. We must also understand that if the imprints are to be varied, with all the varieties there to see, this thing upon which the imprints are to be formed could not be well prepared for that role if it were not itself devoid of any of those characters that it is to receive from elsewhere. For if it resembled any of the things that enter it, it could not successfully copy their opposites or things of a totally different nature whenever it were to receive them. It would be showing its own face as well. This is why the thing that is to receive in itself all the elemental kinds must be totally devoid of any characteristics. Think of people who make fragrant ointments. They expend skill and ingenuity to come up with something just like this, to have on hand to start with. The liquids that are to receive the fragrances, they make as odorless as possible. Or think of people who work at impressing shapes upon soft materials. They emphatically refuse to allow any such material to already have some definite shape. Instead, they'll even it out and make it as smooth as it can be. In the same way then, if the thing that is to receive repeatedly throughout its whole self the likeness of the intelligible objects, the things which always are, if it is to do so successfully, then it ought to be devoid of any inherent characteristics of its own. This, of course, is the reason why we shouldn't call the mother or receptacle of what has come to be, of what is visible or perceivable in every other way, either earth or air, fire or water, or any of their compounds or their constituents. But if we speak of it as an invisible and characterless sort of thing, one that receives all things and shares in a most perplexing way in what is intelligible, a thing extremely difficult to comprehend, we shall not be misled. And insofar as it is possible to arrive at its nature on the basis of what we said so far, the most correct way to speak of it may well be this. The part of it that gets ignited appears on each occasion as fire, 
The dampened part as water, and parts as earth or air, insofar as it receives the imitations of these. So I wanted to read that section because it continues with this idea of this container or this sets of limits that contain the physical things. And Timaeus is being very clear that the container itself is formless, shapeless. But this container takes on the impressions of shape. It's almost as if these physical objects have this kind of gravitational property that they impress their shape on this kind of shapeless, formless platform. Um, and, and the platform is a container, the container of the limits. And I thought this was an interesting way of um, expressing or kind of maybe introducing the idea of the forms. So the forms are the the, the things in the realm of being, the, the eternal things in the realm of being. And they're almost projecting into this container. And this container contains the limits of those projections of the forms uh, and, and takes the impressions of those. And, and the interesting reference to copying specifically in here, uh, that was interesting because, you know, as the forms project themselves, they copy themselves into, you know, in different manners. So I think said, uh, I think it was in our first session of the time, there was a little section of the Republic that I read about um, a craftsman making a bed, for example. The craftsman doesn't make the idea of bed itself. The craftsman makes a bed, a particular version of a bed, modeled on the idea of a bed. So in this kind of conception, the idea of bed would be in the realm of being, that kind of eternal realm. And then we take our models and, and create those imitations in the realm of becoming. And the realm of becoming contains the limits that hold the shape of the things that we make. Uh, so I thought this section was particularly interesting. I don't know if there's any comments on on this section. Clem. Actually, this passage, the couple of paragraphs that you just read, to me, it has the most resonance based on you know what I've already learned about philosophy around that time in, in different cultures as well. It seems to me actually to be like this really the strongest uh exposition of the metaphysics at, at, so far right now when it gets to triangles that's there's a lot of irony i sense there but before he does that when he talks about these two poles of the existence uh and again these are the two realms that he sticks with this idea of, of the two realms but then he sort of develops and puts more content into it and helps us understand how it works and in what are the principles what are the relationship between the two this in fact i would argue that he is not really saying too much new here because he may be just repeating the ideas that were very widely spread back around that time in this whole eastern thought i think around that time there was a lot of um interchange between different cultures in further east like all the way to india uh these type of ideas would be very common there in fact like in india in, in hindu studies there are two schools that would almost use the same terminology two schools of thought of the indian philosophy and and the one that resonates the most would be the, the sankhya uh philosophy that talks about two poles, one active, which acts upon the passive pole, and the passive pole is this undifferentiated, let's call it matter, 
but it's the undifferentiated substance as opposed to, let's say, let's call the, the world of ideas uh, as essence, right? And so the essence acts upon the substance, which is undifferentiated, but that lower pole of existence has the capability uh, once being activated or acted upon by the higher principle to start generating all sorts of forms because that's basically it's the its function in itself it's formless and shapeless but it does have that capacity to start generating all the visible you know visible and invisible worlds with and, and and you're right in mentioning that yes it's that's where the uh the parameters are the like the limitations the limits the the borders boundaries and the the whole principle of differentiation comes it's sort of buried it's i would say it's it's an enactment enactment of differentiation that stems from that lower pole of reality where obviously there is an idea and the potentiality of all sorts of differentiation and all sorts of forms that that also resides with with the higher principle but they're almost like uh living in the ideal you know the you know using the plato uh terminology in the ideal form where they are not yet actualized right and you could use this metaphor of a mirror for example right in the mirror that reflects all the objects that that pass it so you could think of the reflection in the mirror as this universe that uh, plato is talking about and again it's the the reflection he, he does use the, the, the term reflection and the idea of the mirror and the reflection is also very widespread and very common in many cultures around that time and so it's being utilized by many philosophical systems and, and, and thought patterns uh, back then i thought i'd just mention that because i think it's it's actually a very common place and and probably one of the few places in uh, Western philosophy that uh, links it to the the world of like, the global thought really because we're talking about not we're not even talking about some marginal philosophies in in the east we're talking about the at least two major points of view philosophical points and then schools in, in India of that time uh, which would be one would be Sankhya which is sort of a repository of the, the terminology and the theory for, for the yoga and the, the schools of Advaita philosophy, which would also utilize and build on the Sankhya philosophy. And the Sankhya would probably be considered, at least by the modern European frame of mind, it would be considered like a dualistic system, which many would probably assign the dualistic label to Plato as well, uh, because there is polarity, there's obvious polarity in there. But then, then what Advaita does, it, it basically builds on that, unifies that polarity, kind of just removes the notion of polarity by saying, well, the, what you call the other pole, the plane of reflection, the undifferentiated matter that starts you know, generating all these forms and things and, and shapes and, and boundaries, it's really nothing other than the acting side of the realm of ideas or the, the let's say the supreme being so it's 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 power it's it's energy that is generative in nature and it's, it's sort of like a radiation from from the sun so i'll stop here but I, I thought it's to me it's it's the most readable and the most i can 
see how I can relate with what I've already learned and, and, and read very easily to what Plato is saying. And now, obviously, this is his own modification of the thought pattern at, at that time. He's very unique in that sense. Uh, and he's also sort of like an independent thinker, right? A, a, a very European, keeps his like, unique character in, in what he what he does because he he kind of sticks to his own truth you know he started with one set of propositions and so he now is just developing them and then he's also a geometer so he's like he can't uh, let loose that that whole idea of the triangles and, and he seems to like to really want to work that into that larger picture so i'll stop here that's an interesting connection that you made you know the, the two different poles one active one one passive really interesting and the idea of reflection because again to go back to what time has said about the construction of the universe with a soul at its middle and the soul rotates around itself. Um, and so the soul in the middle has the capacity to reflect. That would be the, in its capacity of reason, which exists only in the realm of being, not in the realm of becoming. So, you know, if one pole is in the realm of becoming, that's the pole that's always changing, but the pole in the realm of being would be the one that's always making the measurement and then, you know, the idea of differentiation, again, it just occurred to me that in calculus, there's differentiation, but then there's also integration. And so maybe from its position at the center, and Timaeus having told us in the part that we read at the previous session, Timaeus having told us that the middle belongs to each of the extremes. And so this position in the middle, the soul in the middle has the capacity both to differentiate within the circle, which makes up the sphere, but also the capacity to integrate it. So it made me think of a little bit of calculus in that sense. So, so thank you for bringing that comparison. And we'll go to Steve. Try to be brief. Uh, thing that stood out to me, right, with the part you read early on, it is in fact appropriate to compare the receiving thing to a mother, the source to a father, and the nature between them to the offspring. Well, this, I think, gives a good view of their way of thinking at that time, thinking the father is a source and the mother is just the receptacle where, you know, as we know now, it's like there's a equal co contribution to the uh, evolution of the uh, offspring that comes from it. And just a couple of thoughts about the way he's talking about the receptacle of all things. Uh, in my view, it's it's not a substance, the receptacle of all things is not a substance. It's a process of change and adaption that results from the interaction of things that come to be. It does not receive the impressions of the form, but rather generates the form through the mechanisms of variation, selection, and inheritance. It's that invisible and the characteristic list, but has a history and a direction it can be can traced and explained by natural laws. Um, and I do see the connection that Clem put out between the Orthodox uh, Indian religions as just like in the uh, Platonistic is based on the idea of a creator or demiurge. All of the, the, the religions, the Orthodox religions are based on the ancient Vedic scriptures, which were, you know, I'm generalizing based on a, a horse worship. They were the uh, the Aryan invader religion took over, and they were uh, warriors and horse riders. So 
you know, it, it leads to the whole, whole sorts of analogies about, you know, the head, you know, the hooves and everything, and it gets into the class system and everything. But uh, just, again, the same connection of the idea that all of these things are being the base of, of both of these are based on some outside entity, creator entity, creator force, and instead of looking at it as a, a dynamic evolutionary and changing force, hopefully as a little briefer this time. Thanks, though. Well, thanks. And I guess the the creative force, I guess, maybe in the sense like the initial creative force, the creator or the, the craftsman, um, that's kind of inaccessible in, in this dialogue. Uh, but what's accessible, I think, is the realm of being where our faculty of reason resides. And that's maybe where the creations are coming about in the realm of becoming to the extent that we are each capable of making certain physical things come into being and pass away as we all are, you know, I can lift a pen, I can move a piece of paper, you know, I can do all of this with the physical. And so that's in a sense, I guess, creating physical motion, but, you know, obviously I'm limited. My, my force of one human is, is relatively small compared to the universe. So maybe it's a question of, you know, the original creation versus ongoing creation of which we are part. Um, yeah, I don't know. And then I guess, you know, the analogy of the mother and the the father, maybe it was an analogy that was put in there at the time. Yeah, it's something that was useful. And then maybe that analogy isn't so useful now. I don't know that maybe that's the problem with analogies is that they have to kind of last through time to be understood as we develop different understandings over time. So but and and you know as you said the receptacle is not a substance and, and clearly in, in this case timey as is saying it has no substance it it has no form so uh thanks and then we'll go to darren i don't have that much to say about this receptacle idea i see it as just like one part of the metaphysics he sort of needs so it's just sort of there i guess <laughs> i i personally don't like get that much like depth of insight just from the fact of that there's this receptacle um i do want to comment though on something james brought into the picture about how the movement of the souls and how they're lacking in intelligence at first how they have to gain composure i just, just want to like comment on this in case there's not another opportunity to <laughs> i already mentioned last week about how i liked how he talked about the various ways we become more intelligent and I guess become happy is by studying the world, observing the world. He talks about how sight and coming to observe the stars and um, understanding them, including their sort of mathematical properties will like stabilize our souls. I said then I appreciate how it was like by reaching out towards the world and finding out about it. And for Plato, it has this relationship with our own selves. And so the work on ourselves should actually be work in the world about, you know, learning about the world and discovering it. And, um, and that's how we find meaning within. Whereas I think there's a lot of, you know, other sort of um, approaches where it's just all within, which just seems so self-absorbed and a bit narcissistic to me. There we go. And sorry, you were, sorry, Darren, you were introducing your point about music and harmony and that's oh, okay. as far as we got. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So you, I was responding to your point about the soul lacking intelligence and how they, you know, have to gain composure over time and how in the last week's reading, we discussed how sight does that because it's learning about the external world and the universe and its operations and the order orderliness of it that we put our own souls in order and how it's a similarly with music, which he also discussed. He says explicitly, like it helps us put our uh, souls in order and gain measure again and proportion. And so the, what's interesting to me was, again, this idea of the how the outside coincides with the inside for us, which doesn't have necessarily have to be the case. Like there's no necessary reason it has to be the case, but that's like this part of this worldview that there is this conformity because it's all related to the intellect. This idea of the coincidence is interesting and in how I think it's a deep theme in this dialogue because we saw in, week, in the first discussion in, in the first week that there's all these like creepy and eerie coincidences between, you know, what Socrates uh, Republic that he came up with, which caused Critias to recall, you know, this ancient story he heard about this ancient city and a really ancient Athens and how it was similar. And, you know, there's all these coincidences and we were, you know, trying to figure out what that means. But one of the things it's the dialogue clearly seems to be trying to evoke is that there is a sense of a deep logic to everything that's beneath the surface. And, you know, it manifests itself in, in these coincidences between the in, our souls and the external world and also, you know, occurrences in the world. But, you know, this this dialogue and maybe the next one, too, is like giving a likely account of what might be behind all these um, all these like deep similarities and our ability to maybe even like understand one another and so on. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's yeah, that, that was about it. Well, thanks. And that actually. Um kind of refers in a way to the section that I wanted to read, which is 51C to 52D. And this is where Timaeus makes the point that in order to have a difference between belief and knowledge, the universe has to be constructed this way. So this is one of his proofs, I guess, that uh, that he offers as well. Let me just go on to read this part. So he's, he goes on, he says, but we must prefer to conduct our inquiry by means of rational argument. Hence, we should make a distinction like the following. Is there such a thing as a fire by itself? Do all these things of which we always say that each of them is something by itself really exist? Or are the things we see and whatever else we perceive through the body the only things that possess this kind of actuality, so that there is absolutely nothing else besides them all? Is our perpetual claim that there exists an intelligible form for each thing a vacuous gesture, in the end nothing more than mere talk? Now, we certainly will not do justice to the question before us if we dismiss it, leaving it undecided and unadjudicated, and just insist that such things exist, but neither must we append a further lengthy digression to a discourse already quite long. If, however, a significant distinction formulated in a few words were to present itself, that would suit our present needs best of all. So here's how I cast my own vote. If understanding and true opinion are distinct, then these by themselves things definitely exist, these forms, the objects, not of our sense perception, but of our understanding only. But if, as some people think, true opinion does not differ in any way from understanding, then all the things we perceive through our bodily senses must be assumed to be the most stable things there are. But we do have to speak of understanding and true opinion as distinct, of course, because we can come to have one without the other, and the one is not like the other. It is through instruction that we have come to have understanding and through persuasion that we have come to have true belief. Understanding always involves a true account, while true belief lacks any account. And while understanding remains unmoved by persuasion, true belief gives into persuasion. And of true belief, it must be said, all men have a share. But of understanding, only the gods and a small group of people do. 
since these things are so, we must agree that that which keeps its own form unchangingly, which has not been brought into being and is not destroyed, which neither receives into itself anything else from anywhere else, nor itself enters into anything else everywhere, is one thing. It is invisible. It cannot be perceived by the senses at all. And it is the role of understanding to study it. The second thing is that which shares the other's name and resembles it. This thing can be perceived by the senses, and it has been begotten. It is constantly born along, now coming to be in a certain place and then perishing out of it. It is apprehended by opinion, which involves sense perception. And the third type is space, which always exists and cannot be destroyed. It provides a fixed state for all things that come to be. It is itself apprehended by a kind of bastard reasoning that does not involve sense perception, and it is hardly even an object of conviction. We look at it as in a dream when we say that everything that, that exists must of necessity be somewhere, in some place, and occupying some space, and that that which doesn't exist somewhere, whether on earth or in heaven, doesn't exist at all. We prove unable to draw all these distinctions and others related to them, even in the case of that unsleeping, truly existing reality, because our dreaming state renders us incapable of waking up and stating the truth, which is this, since that for which an image has come to be is not at all intrinsic to the image, which is invariably borne along to picture something else, it stands to reason that the image should therefore come to be in something else, somehow clinging to being, or else be nothing at all. But that which really is receives support from the accurate true account, that as long as the one is distinct from the other, neither of them ever comes to be in the other in such a way that they at the same time become one and the same, and also two. Let this then be a summary of the account I would offer, as computed by my vote. There are being, space, and becoming, three distinct things which existed even before the universe came to be. There's a number of interesting things in that section that I thought we could dive into, one being the idea of space as, as this kind of eternal, formless thing, this, this kind of platform in which things can come into being. And then this idea of the dreaming state, uh, which I hadn't really come to any conclusions on myself. So there's a couple of things that uh, that I thought we're, we're talking about. But then also the, the idea of this need to differentiate between opinion and knowledge. And so I think one of the interesting things is, again, that reference to the divided line of knowledge in which belief and, and knowledge uh, exist. And that reference was from the Republic. So again, maybe a reason why the Republic was brought into it. And so, yeah, just wondering what thoughts are about this particular part. Darren, did you have any thoughts about that? This is one of my favorite parts of the reading this week. This um, this distinction he draws between knowing and just true having just true opinion. And of course, I mean, this distinction has been drawn in other dialogues, so it's nothing really new. But but what I find kind of great about it here is that he's using it to show that because he's posing the question right before this, whether, you know, there is such a thing as these, I guess, intelligible causes or intelligible forms or being or whether everything is just as these ancient Greeks say, all becoming. <laughs> and I just love the use of this very distinction between knowledge and true opinion in order to sort of demonstrate that there is such a thing as being because he's saying that the, that this distinction is a real distinction right that there is there is such a distinction which is suggesting there is there is a, such a thing as knowing which is different from true opinion and we do draw this distinction 
and how if we deny the form, if we deny, you know, such things as, you know, intelligible forms, then, you know, we have to say that there is no such distinction between <laughs> knowing and true opinion because there, you know, everything is just like perception. Um, there is no such distinction here then. In, in which case, like the implication of this argument, we, we might be contradicting ourselves because if you deny there is a distinction <laughs> between true opinion and knowledge, it seems like you might be kind of making a kind of contradiction in, in, in trying to even demonstrate or, or, or saying something like that. There's something very suggestive. It, it's not all flushed out on the, in the text itself, but it's suggesting all these like interesting possibilities by using the very distinction between knowledge and true opinion mm -hmm. in order to show that there is something that is being, um, I think it's quite interesting that it's sort of like he's turning the subject on itself in order to uh, make his point. So I don't think I've seen this in other places in Plato before. And I think it's it's interesting how it's been used here. Yeah, definitely. And, and especially that connection with the Republic and the difference between opinion and knowledge. And as you said, you know, it's kind of like turning it on itself. You know, how do you have knowledge of opinion and how do you have opinion of knowledge? Maybe it's um, one thing I really thought was interesting was the part that I underlined in bold here. As long as the one is distinct from the other, neither of them ever comes to be in the other in such a way that they at the same time become one and the same and also two. And to me, this means the eternal separation of the observer and observed. To be an observer, you have to have full access to that which is being observed for there to be intelligence of that which is being observed. Um, so there has to be that separation. And I think he's saying clearly here that there is that separation so that the observer has the ability to move from belief to opinion, to knowledge, to wisdom, because the observer has that intelligence of all that is observed because the, the two are in different realms. The observer is the soul that's in the realm of being, the eternal realm of being, whereas the observed is in the realm of becoming. And I really thought that was an elegant way of stating that need to keep them uh, from becoming one and the same. Uh, so that's, uh, I think, part of that essential construction of the universe. And maybe that's the only way the universe could be constructed to go back to the original question. So thanks. And we'll go to Clem and then Steve. I found it interesting how Plato operates with three entities. In the beginning, the section that we're discussing, he talks about father, mother, and child. Uh, and I kind of touched on that where, you know, I tried to talk about the analogies in the Indian philosophy where the father and mother would be the poles of the reality. And then I guess the child would be the generation of the mother with the, the, the direct impact from the father. And it's very... I'd, I'd like to kind of repeat myself here, um, and I also apologize for the quality of the sound uh, earlier. It's it's a very common notion around that time. It's a, this this concept, this conceptual structure. It's not just uniquely uh, Greek, in in my opinion. I think it's it's basically runs all that geographic space from uh, Greece to all the way to to India. Now, he kind of shifts a little bit later. He, he shifts where he also talks in, in three, but then he brings space into the picture. I, th I think it was like being, space, and, and something else. I don't remember the term that he used. Becoming. And becoming. So 
it's almost like he's now he's shifted the angle he's looking at the same thing father mother and child right but then he adds another dimension to it because maybe he's trying to look at it from from a different angle conceptually again again and, and i want to emphasize that i'm not trying to draw parallels with, with the modern science it would be it would be a little a different task right to criticize plato's philosophy and his thinking his way of thought in, in trying to find out what's where where the truth is whether whether it's in, in modern science or modern philosophy or the the plato i think it would be a lot more useful to think of you know how plato's ideas and greeks ideas around that time contributed to our modern understanding of the reality of the physics and and our you know modern philosophy schools rather than take you know kind of taking sides there and i think plato's philosophy is, is really it's the, the cornerstone it's uh it's the foundation because it's very well developed i mean when we have texts that remain and then we we have the whole tradition philosophical tradition that builds on that and it's almost uninterrupted to me that's where the value is and in, in, in trying to understand how folks around that time thought about the reality and how they slowly build philosophical concepts i think that's where the value is uh, and it's i'm not saying that it does not resonate so, some portions of it don't resonate with the modern science i think they do it's just that it, it's it, interesting to see how you would think like with the like i'll, I'll bring the triangles in, into the picture right now because i think it's it's a good uh time to to do that it, you could see like how when I almost thought Plato was onto something when he when he started mentioning triangles because I, I was I was thinking about the uh, Cartesian system of coordinates and and how it's basically all about the triangle and the sides that form the right angle of the triangle and the relationship the relationships between those sides because then you can start building the infinite number of proportions and that's what he was you know he was talking earlier about the common measures you could build probably like the whole atomic science and and the maybe like the table of chemical elements just by using relationships between the two sides of the triangle because all this calculus is there you know you just need to kind of unpack it uh but then he shifted just just when I thought he's going to mention something, he's going to link the, the idea of the triangle to the idea of the proportions, he shifted into more concrete and more more solid, more plain interpretation of that, where he, he kind of took the side with the materialists of that time, where, you know, they talked about the indivisible atoms, and then he's like, oh, no, no, it's like, it's all made of triangles. And it's kind of interesting that he, he shifts points, shifts perspectives there as he develops his theory, because he, he still cannot depart from that idea of the build, solid building blocks. And then so he's, he's using triangles for that, which seems convenient because he's a geometer and then he, he really wants to, you could tell how he really wants to use that, utilize that in his physics, really, because now we're really in the plane of physics when, when he starts talking about the four main substances um the elements the, the fire water uh, and so on but then he almost like f falls into that trap of the atomists <laughs> who think about the, the the actually the tangible building blocks where it would be more appropriately to 
keep the abstract notions of triangles in the higher realm, in the realm of ideas, and kind of draw conclusions from there that, yes, they may be the principles of the proportions that you could use to apply to uh, the lower level of reality. And, and that would be a reflection of those proportions that are determined at, at the higher order. But he, he doesn't really go there. And he doesn't go into the, obviously, the calculus and the old Cartesian system of coordinates as well. Um, but it's kind of, it's, it's ironic in a way where, and then he's also being ironic where he talks about, let's, let us rest for a while from all these hard metaphysical uh, concepts and, and let's talk about simpler stuff like physics, like building blocks of the reality. Oh, it's, it's so much easier. And then he just like takes a very weird turn and goes into the atomistic worldview uh, using triangles, which are again, abstract notions. There, there's nothing tangible about triangles other than the abstract dimensions that you assign it to it it's not real it, it, it does not live in the the tangible in the in the world of gross matters and then he with those triangles he builds cubes and all three-dimensional forms so he takes two-dimensional object and then builds a three-dimensional but then he never really explains what those triangles are made of like what qualities they have other than just the measures right the that you can form with using two right triangles you can form one yeah. uh, triangle with uh equal uh sides right uh it's kind of like a rudimental geometry very interesting i mean you can play with it it's um there's value there it's just in the thought pattern that, that he takes and then the, where his thought leads him so that's an unpredictable route that he takes. And then he's also the, the space, when he mentions space, so I'm mm -hmm. coming back to this second trinity that he's using, the being space and becoming. I mean, you can, I guess, <laughs> interpret that within the father, mother, and the child, where the being obviously is going to be the father. Becoming is going to be the child that's generating by the mother, you know, with, with the help of the father. So that would be probably... The becoming and then the space that's another oddity there to me because why would space not be part of the realm of the becoming you could probably split space and say well conceptually as an abstract notion as a principle of continuity such as uh, spatial continuity in the realm of becoming it's part of the world of the ideas but then the space itself is the condition which should be maybe more properly attributed to the lower realm, to the undifferentiated gross reality, the, the matter that generates all forms, because it would be like a property, maybe property of the nurturing principle. But it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I'm not like necessarily disagreeing with what he says. It's just a little odd because that's another striking uniqueness of Plato's thought where he kind of departs he first he goes along very well along and the, he matches the indian thought and the eastern thought and but then he throws the space in there it would be like an, going into the error in the eastern philosophy by making it a, a, like a third actor or a third concept to, to describe the the reality but then he's also very much in line when he talks about the, the chunk of gold that's being reshaped and constantly remolded into different shapes. He's right on there with the Eastern philosophy where the substance of the reality, the gold, the undifferentiated gold will be like the real thing, right? And then 
different shapes that chunk of gold can take would be considered of a lower mm -hmm. level of reality it's it, right. it's there's actually like a special term for that the yeah. namarupa in the indian philosophy which is literally translates as the name and form yeah. let, let me just in, interrupt there if i could just because i realize we only have like literally one minute left in the scheduled time and you, you've mentioned triangles, and I really did want to get to those. Um, so I don't know if everybody would be okay to go another 15 minutes, say, and then we maybe could continue that discussion and get a little bit of the triangles in. We're not going to get anywhere near the end of this today, unfortunately. So, But I'd like to get that on the table because it really leads to that discussion of the five platonic solids. So, I mean, Clem, you said... That you know, Plato didn't go into Could calculus. Could we go back to Darren's idea? I don't think we, you know, I wanted to comment on. I thought it was very important about knowing and true opinion. I yeah, think yeah. We, we I think we over that was part of our the topic we're on, and we're sort of jumping ahead. I don't yeah, know. yeah. We we do need to get to that. So if if we're okay for another fifteen minutes, why don't we deal with that? And then maybe at the end, I can just uh, talk a little bit about the triangles, because it, it, it has come up a number of times, and I think we really need to understand what's being said there and said throughout this whole section with respect to shape. Shape is critical. Shape is what we measure by. So, But shape is not part of the physical. Shape is a limit of a solid, as Socrates said in the Mino. So that's part of the platonic system, which maybe, you know, Klim is not something that was well understood at that point. So in terms of looking at this as a piece of historical information to understand how how they saw things. I think Plato's maybe presenting something very different, and maybe that's why he introduced the five solids in this. Uh, and he doesn't tell us exactly what they're used for, but he gives us some clues. So sorry for interrupting there. I just I just wanted to be, to be mindful of time that we um, we have a little bit of time remaining. So if we're okay going another 15 minutes, did you want to finish off, Clem, or was there... Oh no, I'm 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 totally yeah. fine. Yeah. Okay. I'm, that's, okay. That's good. Sorry, I kind of okay. ran. The yeah. No. No worries. No worries. Yeah. Much. No. And unfortunately, my technology problem here caused us to uh, run over time as well. So, if we can bear with it for another fifteen minutes or so, then um, yeah, I think we can get through this. So, Steve, and then Darren. Um, yeah, like I said, I thought uh, Darren's point was really important about the. Uh, drawing the distinctions between uh, knowing and true opinion. And I think we have to be careful with our languaging because, you know, I think uh, when you say you're going to know something, I think it's a common expression, which, you know, in a lot of cases is really we're talking about true opinion. I think the way that this knowing, it's almost like uh, scare quotes, that it's like the ultimate reality, ultimate knowing with certitude, you know, and uh, I think it's it's a very interesting uh, distinction. And I think that I can draw a couple of other analogies. In uh, Indian philosophy, uh, Nagarjuna talks about uh, the two truths. He talks about conventional truth, which is, you know, more or less like true opinion. It's what we can know in the conventional reality. And then there's ultimate truth, and that's the the knowing. Then you can also look at uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, where he's talking about that, you know, he he proved mathematically that you can never have a formal system can never be proved completely. Is you always have a uh, an axiom that you're you're basing things on, so that there's no possibility of getting to ultimate reality. 
And if you're looking at the three types of things, you know, you were, we're always, when we're talking about anything, we're talking it from a position of a observer. You know, we're observing, we're interpreting. So we're putting our point of view onto what our opinions are. So, and I think it relates a little bit to what, uh, you know, Clem was starting to talk about with the triangles, because, you know, he mentioned that the way Plato was talking about triangles, it almost seems like he could extrapolate, you know, all of, you know, what, what we, we know now as our mo modern science and philosophy, our, my, our, our modern science. But the reality is it, it did take the atomistic view, the particular view, the experimental view in order to um, ascertain that. And that's like the difference again between um, you can have theorems and you can use them for practical purposes but there's no way to come to ultimate knowing. So the, the best you can ever get, come to is your true opinion. And you can refine that and um, get closer and closer, hopefully to a to what is the actual reality. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's an interesting way of putting it. The understanding, and I just going back to this section, it's around 51E, I think this section where Timaeus says, but we do have to speak of understanding and, and true opinion as distinct, of course, because we can come to have one without the other, and the one is not like the other. It is through instruction that we have come to have understanding and through persuasion that we have come to have true belief. Understanding always involves a true account, while belief lacks any account. And what I'm thinking in this accounting process is that it's the account of why things have come to be or the order in which things have come to be. These measurements that we're making from the center of it all, telling us what the order of, uh, of cause and effect is. Everything comes to be from a cause. Socrates has said a number of times elsewhere. So we always have to know what the cause is, and then we have to observe the effect. So we're in this realm of being, observing the causes and effects in the realm of becoming, and that's where Timaeus has kind of intimated that this is the nature of time. This is this is how we understand time as a connection between uh, cause and effect of the physical. So maybe that's one way of looking at it. But I just thought I would highlight this uh, those few lines that uh, particularly where he says that understanding always involves a true account, while true belief lacks any account. Uh, so maybe that's kind of distinguishing the way he sees it. So. So thanks for bringing that out. Um, and uh, Darren. Yeah, thanks for reading that uh, passage, James. Uh, that was really helpful. And I think it points to how like the idea of knowledge that's at work in this argument, which again is to prove that there, or, or, or an argument, I wouldn't say prove, but an argument for the existence of forms or intelligible being it is, um, and so the passage that James has read, James has read was helpful because it shows that the account of knowing is not about like complete certainty. It's like the only account that's happening of knowledge here is like basically justify true belief, which is the one we saw in Theotetus, which, by the way, Theotetus does not mention forms at all, which is another interesting thing, even though it's about knowledge. So and and this is a very ordinary sort of understanding of knowledge, which, you know, which I think in ordinary parlance which actually the passage of james read is indicating that this is just how people we use these terms there's people have opinions which might happen to be true and then there's actual knowledge where you have an account of it um, or justification yeah so i i think that's maybe 
you know, important to point out. And I like how in the, in the argument here, he, he's like suggesting that if we deny there, there's such a distinction, it, it's like we can't even then then you're sort of contradicting yourself because you're saying that you don't have knowledge of what the thing you're just saying like if you deny that then it's just all like it's all becoming it's just all whatever it's just all like uh sound waves coming out of your mouth <laughs> so and then you know that's sort of like a, a basis for this argument of why there are intelligible forms or being and okay so very quickly i know we're we don't have that much time um yeah, I'll try to keep this very short. Regarding the uh, triangles thing, which I guess is basically, you know, <laughs> Plato's own kind of account for the world. I think it's important to like maybe see what he's working, what Plato's working against too. Um, what he ends up being able to say is that those elements like fire, water, whatever, aren't the like the ultimate constituents that people think they are because they actually are just becoming too. They turn, this is why there is that whole section about our use of language. We shouldn't call them is or whatever um, that they're the, because they can actually turn into each other. So they're not ultimate reality. And Plato in this, I think his whole metaphysics, right. Is pointing to an even deeper reality than these things that seem like ultimate constituents, which is, surprise surprise is mathematical like so the most fundamental element of reality more even fundamental than the supposed things we revisibly see is a mathematical property that underlies everything and i think this might be what's what later people and you know a lot of people later on found very profound um and this also of course connects to the idea that reason is also at the center of the universe but okay I, i'll just leave it there I, I think it's important to you know see this special move or the new move that plato might be making um, which is saying that there's something even more de deeper and that deeper reality is ma is mathematical. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think so. And maybe that's our modern understanding too of physics and and it, that it's mathematical and geometric. I mean, certainly it is expressible by math and geometry. And that's what starting, well, not even before Newton, but Newton and Einstein really took to the level of general relativity. Yeah, so triangles are interesting. It's come up a number of times, so unfortunately we're running out of time. So I thought maybe what I would do is just introduce this section here from 53A to 54B, and then in two weeks we can continue this discussion because I think there's some things that we need to resolve here. So let me introduce this idea of triangles. And, you know, as you said, Darren, the, these four essential elements, earth and fire are kind of on the two opposite ends. And then he puts water and air in the middle. So they're the intermediates. And we'll see this in the statement here that, um, and they're actually, you know, modern physics looks at both of them as fluids, right? So both are subject to fluid dynamics, whereas earth is a solid and fire. I'm taking when he refers to fire in the most general concept of thermodynamics. So not necessarily something that's in your fireplace, but heat generally. So uh, as, as a force that uh, drives motion. So this is from 53A to 54B. So he's talking about, again, about earth, air, water, and fire. That is how, at that time, the four kinds were being shaken by the receiver, which was itself agitating like a shaking machine. And I'll just briefly pause there, because as soon as I read those words, it brought an analogy of those, you know, paint can shakers in the hardware store when you go to get your paint, you know, it mixes the, the paint, all the colors together to produce this uniform mixture. I thought that was a really interesting analogy anyway of shaking machine. Separating the kinds most unlike each other until furthest apart and pushing those most like each other closest together into the same region. 
This, of course, explains how these different kinds come to occupy different regions of space, even before the universe was set in order and constituted from them at its coming to be. Indeed, it is a fact that before this took place, the four kinds all lacked proportion and measure. And at the time the ordering of the universe was undertaken, fire, water, earth, and air initially possessed certain traces of what they are now. They were indeed in the condition one would expect thoroughly God-forsaken things to be in. So, finding them in this natural condition, the first thing the God did was to give them their distinctive shapes using forms and numbers. Here is a proposition we shall always affirm above all else. The God fashioned these four kinds to be as perfect and excellent as possible when they were not so before. It will now be my task to explain to you what structure each of them acquired and how each came to be. My account will be an unusual one, but since you are well-schooled in the fields of learning in terms of which I must of necessity proceed with my exposition, I'm sure you'll follow me. Maybe he's being a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. And he goes on. First of all, everyone knows, I'm sure, that fire, earth, water, and air are bodies. Now, everything that has bodily form also has depth. Depth, moreover, is of necessity comprehended within surface, and any surface bounded by straight lines is composed of triangles. Every triangle, moreover, derives from two triangles, each of which has one right angle and two acute angles. Of these two triangles, one has at each of the other two vertices an equal part of a right triangle, determined by its division by equal sides, while the other has unequal parts of a right triangle at its other two vertices, determined by the division of the right angle by unequal sides. This, then, we presume to be the originating principle of fire and of the other bodies, as we pursue our likely account in terms of necessity. Principles yet more ultimate than these are known only to the god and to any man he may hold dear. We should now say which are the most excellent four bodies that can come to be. They are quite unlike each other, though some of them are capable of breaking up and turning into others and vice versa. If our account is on the mark, we shall have the truth about how earth and fire and their proportionate intermediates, water and air, came to be. We shall never concede to anyone that there are any visible bodies more excellent than these, each conforming to a single kind. So we must wholeheartedly proceed to fit together the four kinds of bodies by surpassing excellence and to declare that we have come to grasp their natures well enough. So with the two right-angled triangles, the isosceles has but one nature, while the scalene has infinitely many. Now we have to select the most excellent one from among the infinitely many, if we are to get a proper start. So if anyone can say that he has picked out another one that is more excellent for the construction of these bodies, his victory will be that of a friend, not of an enemy. Of the many scalene right-angled triangles, then, we posit as the most excellent, surpassing the others, that one from a pair of which the equilateral triangle is constructed as a third figure. Why this is so is too long a story to tell now. But if anyone puts this claim to the test and discovers it isn't so, his be the prize with our congratulations. So I thought that was an interesting way of ending that section of the reading. Uh, it's almost a challenge to the modern times, I think, maybe. I don't know if this has ever been put to the test, but he really displays some interesting knowledge of triangles here. And he was, of course, a geometer, and he was associated with the Pythagoreans, and Pythagoras's theorem is the one that led to, really, I, I think with all of our knowledge now of relativity, couldn't have been possible without that very first input of the Pythagorean theorem. So, um, you know, triangles do have some importance, I think. And then we just draw to attention that when he says any surface bounded by straight lines is composed of triangles, I think what he's saying there is that for any area to be enclosed, there has to be a minimum of three edges. That you can't enclose an area with two edges. You have to have a minimum of three edges. 
So it's this minimum that he's saying prevails through the area of all physical items. Um, so he doesn't mean physical triangles. He means that they are triangular in the sense that they have three edges. Uh, and it's three edges that are required to, to enclose a physical space. So that's how I wanted to introduce that. And then I think next time we'll have to pick up at this point, we'll go to talk about the platonic solids. And then I'd like to talk about that section from 62, is it 62C to 64C in particular. That's the one I mentioned, sort of, I think it was at the outset in response to Roger's question about some of the physical laws of the universe, which I found present in a number of the comments that were made in that particular section. So let's pick up there um, next time and uh, we can continue reading this section and read on to the remainder of the Timaeus and, and see how far we get next time. Darren, any ending thoughts? Maybe just very quick thought, something we'll pick up next time, um, which is like, so this account of triangles, and I think something that speaks in its favor, I mean, at a metaphysical level, <laughs> other than the fact that um, it's basically suggesting, even, even if we don't think in reality, everything is, you know, in these days, we don't think everything ultimately is all these little triangles. But the metaphysical point is that the ultimate reality is, meta is mathematical, which I think does sort of conform to at least a plausible, it's not the only view we people have today, but it's a plausible view of what's going on in the world, you know, with physics, which relies a lot on math, maybe even wholly, you might even say. But but then what comes later, right, of this account of triangles is what he's able to do with it. So he's saying, okay, ultimate reality is these triangles, but then these triangles have different combinations and different sizes. And this gives rise to all these various phenomena, which he, you know, is it might be even a little bit tedious to read. You know, he goes through all the various colors and, and feelings we have and different types of rocks and, you know, all this stuff and how it all comes down to how these mathematical properties combine. It's almost something like periodic tape of elements, but with triangles at the bottom. Um, of course, it's wrong if you take it literally, but metaphysically, there seems to be something to speak in his favor. And I think we'll see more of it fleshed out. And it's not just purely on reason, too. Like, he is trying to be empirical. Like, for instance, he says things like, this is just one of the examples, but he was talking about how, like, he was trying to explain smells. And he was saying something about how if you hold a piece of cloth to your mouth, you can still breathe somehow, but somehow you won't be able to smell. So how do we account for that? So he has an account for, you know, various different phenomena like that. So we're going to see, like, how this... Uh, metaphysics of triangles or mathematics can be rounded out to explain many other things about the world. We're going down and then we're going to come back out and zoom back out again and see what this theory can do for us. Of course, it's not going to be literally true, but I, I, I think metaphysically, historically, it definitely had a lot of influence and maybe might have some value for us today. A good point about diving in and then coming back out. Uh, and so this is talking about depth, this particular section. So we're going deep and then we're going to come back out and take a look at it. I like the way that you put that. And, you know, again, this question of whether to take this literally, I don't think he's suggesting that we go out and suddenly see triangles and everything. I, I think these triangles are not visible triangles, but he's saying, and I think it's defensible. In fact, I would challenge anybody to disprove the statement that any surface bounded by straight lines is composed of triangles. In other words, any surface to be enclosed requires three edges if it's enclosed by a straight line. Now, it can also be enclosed by a circle, right? And that's, that, that's this drawing that I have here on the uh, the screen where I put a circle with a square and I've just divided the square by two diagonals into four triangles. So I have a square, four triangles, and a circle, and they enclose an area. 
right? So every any surface bounded by straight lines is composed of triangles. I would challenge, I would challenge somebody to show me where that's wrong. I don't think that's wrong. So I think maybe we need to look at it from that perspective and then build on that to understand what he's trying to say with the five platonic solids, which is there's a purpose, there's a reason Plato does everything. And I'm sure there's a reason that he brings those into the mix. Steve, any thoughts? Yeah, just two things real quick, once on what you just said and once Darren, um, just that, you know, with your uh, proof there, you're making very limited circumstances that, you know, with the straight line, which is not necessarily the um, omnipresent uh, view of the universe as a whole, the, the complexity and the irregularity of areas and shapes and borders. There's so many multiple combinations that if you take a very tight, constrained uh, situation like that, yeah, that you might have a hard time finding a, a proof against it. But uh, just real, that was real quick. I have to look into what you said, honestly. I'm, it brings a lot of thought. And just a quick point of order on what Darren said about math being uh, reality and math. I'm not, I don't want to misquote you, but to paraphrase that math is the ultimate reality. And math, to me, is still, math is a concept. It's a human concept. It's our way of interpreting the reality. You know, it is an interpretation, regardless of, of how it's good. It's very accurate as far, you know, for us to be able to live and survive. But it's still an interpretation. That was my quick comments. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. And I think as you know, as I said, um, after Darren, that if math isn't the reality, it's that we can express physics with math, and with geometry. So it's a method of expression, maybe, and a method that reflects reality properly. So, yeah, and then, you know, in terms of the straight lines, well, I'm thinking of calculus, actually, now, which takes the circle as its bound, but then I think it looks at the chords in the circle, which are the straight lines, and that's its way of differentiating and integrating. So maybe this thing about surfaces bound by straight lines is actually rather important to a spherical universe. Clem, maybe take us out with the last thought. A couple of, actually, probably just one point on the triangles. I think Plato combines many thoughts into how these triangles are being used. And it does sound that he's using them as building blocks for the reality. Now, I have no objection to Plato's using the geometry to construct a, the second level of reality. In other words, the take the images in the higher realm, the world of ideas, and use the same proportions or, or geometrical shapes to build the reality. And in that sense, it becomes um, like a virtual reality in a way, not the classical modern physics notion until recent times, obviously, because right these days, everything is math. Everything is the probability and math. And scientists are arguing whether we, you know, we live in a virtual reality or not. But I could see how Plato's ideas but using geometry would, would actually help the idea of the virtual reality. It, it's still a world of becoming. It's, it's an illusion of, uh, in, a, in a way, it's not the ideal world, not, not the world of being. It's still the world of becoming, but it is a virtual world. In other words, there, there are no 
building blocks in, in the in the way the classical physics would talk about it, which is fine. It's it's a good point of view. Now, there's another component of that that sort of contradicts, and Plato himself mentions that when he talks about triangles, and he talks about properties which are not abstract properties of the triangles, which are not geometrical properties. And that's that's why I'm saying he is using them as building blocks in the classical physics sense, in the atomistic sense, uh, because he's talking about how smaller and more uh, sharper angled triangles can cut into other compositions of shapes and triangles. And so these are really not, this is not geometry. <laughs> this is the qualities. He's into the qualities and non-geometrical properties. So we have to be careful, right? It's it's very subtle distinction there. It's like we can accept the part that is abstract and geometrical as support and as, as, as a valid point for constructing a virtual type of reality. But then we also have to like understand, well, where, where is he going with all these physical properties, which are like cutting, mm -hmm. splitting. So I just wanted to point that out because that's, to me, it's still a contradiction. Yeah. And I like the way that you use that term virtual reality. And maybe that's an interesting way of thinking of the realm of being. Um, that's a really interesting way, actually, that I think might resonate with the modern sensibility because we all use that term virtual reality. So that's a really interesting way of putting it. You know, in terms of geometry, I mean, clearly geometry is important for proportion, which at the outset, Timaeus said was critical to the soul's ability to, to differentiate between same and different and to understand the order of cause and effect. So I think that geometry is necessary. And, you know, he talks about cutting and fire, and we'll see that in a coming section. I think maybe there's a call to understand the universe from kind of a topological perspective as all of these things moving around and what is the topology of this motion and what are the angles and how do the angles affect each other? Well, you know, angular momentum and all of this is really part of our understanding of general relativity now. So maybe there's an interesting early way of putting this that he's introducing here. And maybe there's something that he's telling us about that with his uh, five solids, the only five regular solids in the universe, all of whose vertices inscribe a sphere, right? And a vertex is an angle, right? So there, there's some geometric knowledge here. I, I think there's there's something that we need to understand. So I will be very interested to explore that next time. So next time, let, let's continue reading. I think we'll have to pick up you know, around 54B where we left off today and see how far we can make. And I think our next session, we'll probably have to do it on a Saturday if that's all right, uh, but I'll I'll confirm that shortly. And really looking forward to seeing what kind of conclusions we can reach with this. So I wanted to thank everybody for being here today and for contributing to a really interesting discussion and bringing lots of problems and questions of understanding, I think, to the table, which I think we really need to get into now that we're deep in the weeds of this, I think we need to, you know, maybe as Darren said, once we get through the weeds is stand back and see what it's all saying. Um, so I think that's the interesting thing about the Timaeus is that it presents to us on so many different levels. So I will end the recording now, but invite anybody who wants to stay on for, I think now that we've gone over time, uh, we'll just keep it a relatively short time for an unrecorded casual discussion. 
on this or Plato or philosophy in general, you're more than welcome to stay on. Otherwise, I hope to see everybody in two weeks.